This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Well, thank you all for coming. And uh, so I'm going to talk probably for about 35, 40 minutes and then try to allow plenty of time for questions. This is a project that is uh, drawn from material that I'm going to be presenting as a series of lectures. And it is not a historical project about the Greeks, which some of my work is, but it does begin with a scene from Greek drama. And, and I want to tell you that you have the chance on February 7th and 8th of seeing some of your fellow students actually act out, and, and of course faculty, act out some of the things I'm talking about. Because at our Law Literature Conference on Friday, February 7th, we're going to be performing the very scenes that I'm talking about. And uh, we have a bunch of students playing the jurors and the handmaidens and so on, and, uh, and wonderful faculty actors, including Judge Posner. So OK. At the end of Aeschylus's Oristia, two transformations take place in the archaic world of the characters. One is famous, the other neglected. In the famous transformation, the goddess Athena, played by Alison LaCroix in the drama, introduces legal institutions to replace and to terminate the seemingly endless cycle of blood vengeance, setting up a court of justice with established procedures of reasoned argument and the weighing of evidence, and a jury selected from the citizen body of Athens, she announces that blood guilt will now be settled by law rather than by the Furies, ancient goddesses of revenge. But, and this is part and parcel of her famous transformation of the Athenian world, the Furies are not simply dismissed. Instead, Athena persuades them to join the city giving them a place of honor beneath the earth in recognition of their importance for these same legal institutions and the future health of the city. Typically, this move of Athena's is understood to be a recognition that the legal system must incorporate the dark, vindictive passions and honor them. This suggestion, the suggestion is that the resentful passions themselves remain unaltered. They simply have a new house built around them. The Furies agree to accept the constraints of law, but they retain an unchanged nature, angry, dark, and vindictive. That reading, however, ignores the second transformation, a transformation in the nature and demeanor of the Furies themselves. At the outset of the drama, the Furies are really repulsive and horrifying. They are black, disgusting. Their eyes drip a hideous liquid. The god Apollo played in the drama by Tom Miles wonderfully, depicts them as vomiting up clots of blood that they have ingested from their prey. They belong, he says, in some barbarian tyranny where it's customary to kill people arbitrarily and mutilate and torture them. Nor, when they awaken, do the Furies belie these grim descriptions, as the ghost of Clytemnestra calls them, and, and, and that's me, I'm afraid. Um, they do not speak but they simply moan and whine, noises characteristic of animals. Their only words are, get him, get him, get him, get him, get him, as close to a predator's hunting cry as the genre allows. As Clytemnestra says, 
In your dream, you pursue your prey, and you bark like a hunting dog on the trail of blood. If the Furies are later given really articulate speech, as, of course, the genre demands, we're never to forget this initial characterization. What Aeschylus has done here is to depict unconstrained anger. It's obsessive, destructive, existing only to inflict pain and ill. As the distinguished 18th century philosopher Bishop Butler observes, no other principle or passion hath for its end the misery of our fellow creatures. In its zeal for blood, anger is subhuman. And Apollo's idea is that this rabid breed belongs somewhere else, in some society that does not try to moderate cruelty, surely not in a society that claims to be civilized. Unchanged, these furies could not be part and parcel of a working legal system in a society committed to the rule of law. You don't put wild beasts in a cage and come out with justice. But the furies do not make the transition to democracy unchanged. Until quite late in the drama, they're still their bestial selves, threatening to disgorge their venom. Then, however, Athena persuades them to alter themselves so as to join her city. Lull to repose, the bitter force of your black wave of anger, she tells them. But of course, that means a really profound transformation. Indeed, a virtual change of identity, so bound up have they been with anger's obsessive force. She offers them incentives to join the city, a place of honor beneath the earth, reverence from the citizens. But the condition of these gifts is that they become human, not totally taken up with revenge, but able to adopt a new range of sentiments. In particular, benevolent, constructive, forward-looking sentiments toward the entire city. They must also refrain from stirring up vindictive anger within it. The deal is that if they do good and have and express kindly sentiments, they will receive good treatment and be honored. Perhaps most fundamentally transformative of all, they must agree to listen to the voice of persuasion. All of this, needless to say, is not just external containment. It's a profound inner reorientation. So they accept Athena's offer and express themselves with gentle-tempered intent. Each, they declare, should give generously to every other in a mindset of common love. Not surprisingly, they're transformed physically in related ways. They apparently assume an erect posture for the procession that concludes the drama, and they receive crimson, or actually maroon in our production, robes from a group of citizen escorts. They become women rather than beasts. Their very name is changed. They're now the Eumenides, which means the kindly ones rather than the Furies. This second transformation is just as significant as the first one and indeed crucial to the success of the first one. Aeschylus shows us that political justice doesn't just put a cage around resentment. It fundamentally needs to transform it from something barely human, obsessive, bloodthirsty, to something human, accepting of reasons, calm, deliberate, constructive, measured, something that protects life rather than threatening it. The indignation that inhabits just institutions is not an angry sentiment at all. It's a measured judgment in defense of life. The Furies are still needed because this is an imperfect world and there will always be crimes to deal with, 
but they are not wanted or needed in their original shape and form. Indeed, they are not their old selves at all. They've become instruments of justice and utility. The city is liberated from the scourge of vindictive anger, which produces civil strife and premature death. And in the place of anger, the city gets forward-looking justice. It's no accident that the major Greek and Roman philosophers from Socrates straight on to Seneca were strong opponents of retributivism in the criminal law and defenders of a welfare-based deterrent conception of punishment. Another liberation goes unexplored but invites our imaginations. It's the liberation of the private realm. In the old world of the Furies, the family and love, familial and friendly, were burdened by the continual need to avenge something for someone. The need for retaliation was unending, and it shadowed all relationships, including those fundamentally benign, such as Orestes' relationship with Electra, or Orestes played beautifully by Daniel Ababa, I should mention. Revenge just makes it impossible for anyone to love anyone. But now, law takes over the task of dealing with crime, leaving the family free to be a place of reciprocal goodwill. It's not that there are no more occasions for anger, but if they're serious, you turn them over to the law. And if they're not serious, well, why should they really long trouble reciprocal concern? As Aristotle will later say, the gentle-tempered person, and that's his name for the virtue that we should strive for in the area of anger, is not vengeful but instead inclined to sympathetic understanding. Law gives a double benefit. It keeps us safe without, and it permits us to care for one another, unburdened by the cycle of vengeance within. So that's my normative thesis in a nutshell, but it's radical and evokes strong opposition. For anger, with all its ugliness, is still a very popular emotion. Many people think it's impossible to care for justice without anger at injustice, and that that anger should be encouraged as part of the transformative process. Many people also believe that it's impossible for individuals to stand up for their self-respect without anger, that someone who reacts to wrongs and insults without anger is spineless and downtrodden. And in fact, I, I used to believe that, and I used to really accept the idea that women should tap into their own anger, acknowledge it, and see this search for suppressed anger as part of a good personal struggle against injustice and for self-respect. Moreover, many people also believe that getting angry when someone else does something bad to you is essential to taking that person seriously. So if you wrong me, and I don't get angry, and I just take it calmly, well, am I... Aren't, I treating you condescendingly like a kind of child or a non-responsible person? So anger is popular. Still, I take courage from the fact that in recent years we've seen three noble and successful liberation movements conducted in a spirit of non-anger, those of Mohandas Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and Nelson Mandela. Surely people who stood up for their self-respect and that of others and who did not acquiesce in injustice. So now, what I'll do for the rest of this talk is try to argue that a close philosophical analysis of the emotion of anger can actually help us to support these philosophies of non-anger, showing why anger is fatally flawed from a normative viewpoint, sometimes just incoherent, 
sometimes based on bad values, but in either case of dubious value to both life and the law. So I'll present my general view and then I'll show briefly its relevance to thinking about transformational justice. So let's begin with Aristotle's definition of anger, which really does a pretty good job and it commands pretty wide agreement in the Western philosophical tradition, although as we'll see, it needs some correction. So what Aristotle says is, anger is a pained response to a significant damage to something or someone that the person cares about, and it's a damage that the angry person believes to have been wrongfully inflicted. He then adds that although anger is painful, it also contains within itself a kind of pleasant hope for payback or retribution. So, what are the elements? Significant damage and damage that pertains to someone or something you you care about, wrongfulness, and then the other element, the element of the hope or wish for retaliation. Now, all of this seems to me pretty basic and uncontroversial. Perhaps the, the idea that it contains retaliation is a little more controversial, although all Western philosophers who write about anger do concur in that. Uh, but, but I think we should understand that this can be a very subtle wish. It doesn't mean you have to really want to strike back yourself. The angry person may simply want the law to catch up with that person and inflict punishment, or even maybe that God should do that. Or, even more subtly still, she might just wish that that person's life will go badly in some way, that that betraying spouse will have a bad second marriage, and then that will be a sufficient uh, punishment for the betrayal. So I, you know, I think once we include all that, it, it does seem very plausible that, that anger does involve that strike-back tendency, however it, subtly it, it comes out. Without that, I think we would be dealing with some sort of compassionate grieving and not really with anger. And no doubt this strike-back tendency is part of the evolutionary uh, heritage that we have where anger is concerned. And I'll, I'll come back to that when I talk about motivation. One more thing that Aristotle says, though, is not quite right. He says anger is always a response not to any old wrongful act, but specifically to what he calls a slighting or a down-ranking. Now, I don't think this is true all the time. I can certainly get angry at social injustice without thinking that it's a particular you know, down-ranking of me. I can even get angry uh, at, at an abstract violation of a principle if I care about that. But still, the truth is that there's a lot to that, and perhaps more than we like to acknowledge. People who do good empirical research on anger are constantly struck by the extent to which people really do think that relative status is, is really the crucial thing that they get angry at. And so, so at least very many cases of anger are perceived as bad because they're down rankings of that person. They push your status downwards. Now, okay, so what's the problem? I think the central puzzle is that the idea of payback just doesn't make sense. Whatever the wrong was that was done, let's say it's a murder or a rape, inflicting pain on the wrongdoer doesn't actually help restore the thing that was lost. 
as Aeschylus already says, when a man's blood is spilled upon the, brown, on, on the ground, what can call it back again? We think that it does do some good, and we, we do think about payback all the time, and I, I think it's a deeply human tendency to think that some sort of proportionality and punishment uh, somehow makes good the offense, only it actually doesn't. I mean, let's say my friend has been raped, and I urgently want the offender to be arrested, convicted, and duly punished in a way that's proportional to the badness of rape. But really, what, what actually good will that do? Looking to the future, I might want many things. I might, might want to restore my friend's life. I might want to work with other women who have been raped. And particularly, I might want to prevent and deter future rapes. But harsh treatment of this particular wrongdoer might or might not achieve the latter goal. It's an empirical matter, and it has to be studied empirically. Now, Jer Jeremy Bentham, the founder of utilitarianism, saw that, and he, he really was not the first because the Greek philosophers preceded him, but he was the first in recent years to expose the, the, the payback fallacy. Usually people don't treat this as an empirical matter. They're in the grip of a kind of idea of cosmic proportionality or fitness that makes them think blood for blood, pain for pain is the right way to go. Now that's deeply human. No doubt it's part of our evolutionary equipment. But I think it's fatally flawed as a way of making sense of the world. But now, let's return to Aristotle's idea of downranking. For there's one, and I think only one situation, in which the payback idea really does work and make sense. And that is when I see the wrong as entirely and only a pushing of me down in the social rank. In other words, only about relative status. So if the problem is not the murder or rape itself, but the way it's affected my ranking in the social hierarchy, then I really can achieve something by humiliating the wrongdoer. I can, by pushing him relatively lower, I push myself relatively higher. And that, that actually works. So I don't need to worry about the real well-being problems caused by murder and rape. If it's all about status, then that kind of humiliating punishment actually works. So, in short, a wronged person who's angry, seeking to strike back, soon arrives, I claim, and of course it has to be argued at much greater length than that, uh, at a fork in the road. And there are three paths that lie before her. First path is the payback path. So she goes down the payback path. The problem with that is it really doesn't do any good, and it's, it's in the grip of this fatally flawed idea of cosmic proportionality. Or, second path is the path of status focus. And there she might really achieve something, but the problem is her norms are pretty bad. They're really, it's not very good to think of murder as all about your relative status in the world and to think that that's the only thing you care about. So what else? What's the third path? Well, if she's rational, after exploring and uh, seeing the flaws in these first two paths, she might then focus on doing whatever would actually make sense and do some constructive good going forward. And then, as we see, that may well be an empirical matter. This might include the punishment of the wrongdoer, but it would have to be as a part of strategies that are addressed to the future. So what's really wrong with the status path, though? Many societies do encourage people to think of all injuries as essentially about themselves and their own ranking. Life 
does involve perpetual status anxiety. There's <clears throat> more or less everything that happens to one can either raise your rank or lower it. I mean, primate societies are entirely about that, and no doubt we inherit quite a lot of that in our own society. Aristotle's society is often called an honor culture, but that's as if our society was not an honor culture. And I'm afraid that, that all too many societies are in the grip of that narrow focus. Still, the tendency to see everything that happens as all about one's own rank does seem pretty narcissistic and ill-suited to a society in which reciprocity and justice are important values. It loses the sense that actions have intrinsic moral worth, that my friend's rape is bad because of the suffering it inflicts, not bad just because of the way it pushes someone down in the social hierarchy. Even were the person herself, the victim, it somehow seems off to view rape as all about status or downranking rather than about pain and trauma. If it were primarily a, about status, it could be rectified by humiliating the offender, and many people certainly believe something like this. But I think that thought is a red herring, diverting us from the reality and, of course, the very difficult problem of dealing with the victim's pain and trauma and then going forward to try to prevent such acts from happening again. All sorts of bad acts, murder, theft, assault, need to be addressed as the bad acts they are, and their victims or the victims' families need constructive attention. None of this will be likely to happen if people are thinking of the offense as all about relative status than, rather uh, than about injury and pain. So to put my radical claim very succinctly, when anger makes sense, its retaliatory, retaliatory tendency is normatively problematic because it's focused on status and not on the other values. And other, in the other case, its retaliatory tendency doesn't make sense and is normatively problematic in that way because we would all like to make sense. So in a rational person, anger, realizing that, soon transforms itself and goes in a different direction. So from now on, I'm going to call this healthy segue into a forward-looking thought and accordingly from anger into compassionate planning, the transition with a capital T. Okay, so that's a technical term in my manuscript. So to clarify further what I mean by the transition, let me consider a case in which anger takes the political form because we're going to get there soon enough and therefore I introduce now the topic of transitional justice. So I want to look carefully just at the sequence of emotions in Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Now King, indeed, begins with the quite Aristotelian summons to anger. He points to the wrongful injuries of racism, which have failed to fulfill the nation's implicit promises of equality. 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, quote, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. Now, the next move King makes, though, is highly significant. For instead of demonizing white Americans or portraying their behavior in terms apt to elicit murderous payback desire, he calmly compares them to people who have defaulted on a financial obligation. America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. Now, here, I think, begins the transition, capital T, for it makes us think ahead in non-retributive ways. So the question now is not how whites can be made to suffer pain, but how can this debt actually be made good? And the financial metaphor brings up the thought 
of, of actually constructively fulfilling something, not of humiliating the debtor, which would not help the debt get paid. The transition then gets underway in earnest as King focuses on a future in which all may join together in pursuing justice and honoring obligations. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity in this nation. So notice, no mention of torment or payback, only of determination to ensure the protection of civil rights at last. And, of course, the we can include white people as well from from now on. King reminds his audience that the moment is urgent and that there's a danger of anger spilling over, but he repudiates that behavior in advance. Quote, in the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. So, the payback is now transformed. It's reconceived as the vindication of civil rights at last, a process that unites black and white in a quest for freedom and justice. Everyone benefits. As many white people already recognize, he says, their freedom is inextricably bound up with our freedom. King next repudiates a despair that could lead either to violence or to the abandonment of effort. And it's at this point that the most famous section of the speech, the I have a dream, takes flight. And of course, the dream is not, you know, it's not like the book of Revelation. It's not a dream of torment or retributive payback. It's a dream of cooperation and equality, liberty and brotherhood. In pointed terms, King invites the African-American members of his audience to imagine brotherhood even with their former tormentors. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. Now, see, there's indeed anger in King's speech at first, and the anger summons up a vision of rectification which naturally takes initially a retributive form. But then King gets busy right away, reshaping retributivism into work and hope. For how, sanely and really, could injustice be made good by retributive payback? The oppressor's pain and lowering do not make the afflicted free. Only an intelligent and imaginative effort toward justice can do that. So that's what I mean by the transition, capital T, a movement from anger with all its defects into forward-looking constructive thought and work. Now, a little parenthetical. King favored nonviolence. So have many intelligent leaders. Sometimes, however, that strategy fails. Nelson Mandela records the gradual decision of the ANC under his leadership that violent strategies would have to be pursued. But it was... So he gave up on nonviolence temporarily and strategically, but never on non-anger, I claim. So notice, while urging ANC members to wake up and in some way to 
heed the call of anger, if you want to say that, as a motivating force. Nonetheless, he never failed to point forward to the transition, pointing people toward a future of cooperation rather than retributive payback. And I'm going to come back to Mandela in a bit. Okay, so um, what good can we say about garden variety anger? Anger has a very limited but real utility, which derives very likely from its evolutionary role as a fight or flight mechanism. And I think there are three things that it does. It can, first of all, be a wake-up call. Namely, you're feeling angry is a sign that something's badly wrong, and that's useful. It can sometimes also, second, be a motivator. It can motivate people to address real problems, and King wrote extensively about that aspect. So we can keep that limited role for anger while insisting that the idea of payback is profoundly misleading and that to the extent that it makes sense, it does so against the background of diseased values. Finally, third, anger might be a deterrent. That is, people who are known to get angry often thereby deter others from infringing their rights. Well, I mean, here one can only say that the way anger deters is not likely to lead to a future of stability or peace. Instead, it's all too likely to lead to a future of more devious aggression. And there are many ways of deterring wrongdoing, some of which are much more attractive than inspiring fear of an explosion. The tendency to anger and retaliation is deeply rooted in human psychology. Anger brings some benefits that may once have been valuable in human prehistory. Even today, vestiges of that useful role remain. Beneficent systems of justice, however, have largely made this emotion unnecessary and were free to attend to its irrationality and destructiveness. Well, okay, so what's the upshot for law? In my larger project, I have really two long law-focused chapters. One is about everyday justice, and then one is about revolutionary justice. So as far as everyday justice goes, the upshot is precisely what Bentham and Plato long ago thought, namely that constructive, forward-looking thought about how to deal with the whole social problem of wrongdoing is what should interest us, not the empty fantasy of payback. Punishment, if we end up opting for it, ought to compete for our attention with other strategies for preventing uh, an incapacitating uh, crime. And thus, the debate about the so-called justification of punishment is actually much too narrow. It, there really should be the, the debate about how punishment measures up to other strategies a society can use ex ante to deter crime. As Bentham himself said, preventing wrongful acts is a complicated task, and we need to consider it in the broadest possible way, asking how nutrition, social welfare, education, and a variety of constructive policies may contribute. He argued that the focus on punishment ex post is actually extremely inefficient if what one really wants is less offending. Often the same result can be attained, quote, as effectually at a cheaper rate, by instruction, for instance, as well as by terror, by informing the understanding, as well as by exercising an immediate influence on the will, end quote. At any rate, you've got to study the entire question. Well, Bentham, unfortunately, cedes too much ground to ordinary intuitions in the rest of what he writes, because although he makes the right framing move, he never pursues the larger inquiry. Well, it was just beyond his means. He was a philosopher, and so he focuses on the narrower task of reconceiving criminal punishment in a utilitarian framework. So being a legal thinker, he simply didn't have 
the wherewithal to approach the larger social problem. But I think he was certainly going in the right direction. Just imagine if parents stopped thinking about education, nutrition, inspiration, and love, and focused single-mindedly on how they could inflict pain after wrongful acts are committed. Well, I mean, that's obviously bad parenting, and I think we all recognize that in that case. And parents don't behave that way because they love their children, and they actually want them to flourish going forward. Unfortunately, citizens do not always love their fellow citizens or think of their well-being as a part of their own. And that, I fear, is why modern societies in general, but I think ours in particular, have been willing to tolerate a pile-on-the-pain strategy as if it really made sense. Well, there's a lot more to be said about that I'm giving, for the faculty here, I'm giving a work-in-progress workshop on it on Mar in, in March. But um, let me, however, conclude by turning back to transitional justice uh, and, and to, to King and his uh, fellows. So lots of people see anger as very appropriate in situations of oppression and is linked to the vindication of self-respect. Non-anger continues to strike many people as strange, unmanly, even in some way revolting. Webb Miller, the UPI correspondent who reported Gandhi's nonviolent protest action at the Darasan Assault Works in 1930, and Gandhi wasn't there, it was actually led by the poet Sarojini Naidu, he observed scores of marchers getting beaten down by the British cops, and he reacted very negatively as he writes in his memoir. He said, not one of the marchers even raised an arm to fend off the blows. They went down like ten pins. From where I stood, I heard the sickening wax of the clubs on unprotected skulls. At times, the spectacle of unresisting men being methodically bashed into a bloody pulp sickened me so much that I had to turn away. The Western mind finds it difficult to grasp the idea of non-resistance. I felt an indefinable sense of helpless rage and loathing, almost as much against the men who were submitting unresistingly to being beaten as against the police wielding the clubs. And this despite the fact that when I came to India, I sympathized with Gandhi's cause. The marchers, however, were not simply acquiescing. They continued to march, and they kept chanting the slogan, Long live the revolution. And yet, as Webb Miller says, there's something in the mind and not only in the Western mind, that resists accepting this way of reacting to brutal behavior. So what do King and Gandhi say in their copious theoretical writings uh, that, uh, to these people who think that anger is the right response to such behavior and the only response consistent with self-respect? First, they point out that the stance they recommend is anything but passive. Gandhi soon rejected the term passive resistance as a misleading term for his idea, and both he and King continually insist that what they recommend is a state of mind that is highly active, even, as King puts it, dynamically aggressive, in that it involves resistance to unjust conditions and protest against them. But when I say we should not resent, I do not say that we should acquiesce, says Gandhi. And King similarly, I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent, Rather, I have tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled into the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. And both men hold, as I've tried to say here, that anger is inherently wedded to a payback mentality. 
Gandhi says, resenting means wishing harm to the opponent, even if only through the agency of God. And King similarly speaks of a strike-back mentality. So that's what they want to get rid of, and we'll soon see what they want to replace it with. Moreover, they say that the new attitude is not just internally active, it issues in concrete physical actions, actions that require considerable courage. King calls this direct action, action in which, after self-purification, by which he means the rejection of anger in oneself, one's own body is used to make the case, and great risks are taken. This action is a forceful and uncompromising demand for freedom. The protester acts by marching, by breaking an unjust law in a deliberate demand for justice, by refusing to cooperate with unjust authority. What's the goal? In King's case, to force negotiation and to move to social change. For Gandhi, it's no less than to overthrow a wrongful government. The idea of acquiescence in brutality is presumably what Webb Miller is revolted by, but he just misunderstands. So what's the new attitude with which they propose to replace anger? King, interestingly, allows some scope for real anger, holding the demonstrations and marches are a way of motivating people and then channeling repressed emotions that might otherwise issue in violence. Nonetheless, even when there's real anger, it must soon lead to a focus on the future with hope and with faith in the possibility of justice. Moreover, anger toward opponents is to be transformed into a mental attitude that carefully separates the deed, which is bad, from the doer, who is not bad, and we should not attribute unalterable evil to people. Deeds may be denounced. People always deserve respect and sympathy. After all, the ultimate goal is to create a world, as King says, where men and women can live together. Above all, then, one should especially not seek to humiliate opponents in any way or wish them ill, but instead should seek their friendship and cooperation. Gandhi remarks that early in his career, he already didn't like the second stanza of God Save the Queen, which asks God to scatter her enemies and confound their politics, frustrate their knavish tricks. He says, "How could we? why should we assume that opponents are knavish? Surely the believer in non-anger should not really think that about opponents. The opponent's person might have made a mistake, but we hope he can be won over by friendship and generosity. But... Since we're all thinking of Nelson Mandela, of course, it's close to the King holiday, too, just by by good coincidence, but we're all thinking about Mandela, and his ideas played a central role in my project even before his recent death. So let me just conclude with an example from Mandela. Now, okay, so I have argued that there are these two paths, the payback path and the status path, and then they both are wrong in different ways. And I'm now going to try to show that Mandela implicitly comes to the same conclusion. He's less theoretical than King and Gandhi, but but really very interesting in, in what he thinks. He recognizes, first of all, that obsession with status is unworthy, and he consciously refuses to go down that road. Although he uses his understanding of the prevalence of status obsession to deal with other people. As for payback, Well, he understands that one very well, and he feels it in his own life and talks about it a lot, and yet he recognizes that it doesn't really get you anywhere. So after the fruit of long self-examination in prison on Robben Island, and he does say that it was particularly anger that was 
his focus in his self-purification, uh, if you want to use the king term, uh, he, he realizes that non-anger and a generous disposition are far more useful, and above all, they're much more useful for the person who's the fiduciary of a nation. To put it in a nutshell, a responsible leader has to be a pragmatist, and anger is incompatible with forward-looking pragmatism. It just gets in the way. So a good leader must move to the transition as quickly as possible, and then for much of his life just stay there. Well, let me just read a part of one of his very intimate conversations with Richard Stengel, who was the guy who helped him put together his autobiography, but he also had other materials which are now published. He says to Stengel, I told the incident of an argument between the sun and the wind, that the sun said, I'm stronger than you are. And the wind says, no, I'm stronger than you are. And they decided, therefore, to test their strength with the traveler who was wearing a blanket. And they agreed that the one who would succeed in getting the traveler to get rid of his blanket would be the stronger. So the wind started. It started blowing, and the harder it blew, the tighter the traveler pulled the blanket around his body. And the wind blew and blew, but it couldn't get him to discard the blanket. And as I said, the harder the wind blew, the tighter the visitor tried to hold the blanket around his body. And the wind eventually gave up. Then the sun started with its rays, very mild, and they increased in strength. And as they increased, the traveler felt that the blanket was unnecessary because the blanket's for warmth. And so he decided to relax it, to loosen it. But the rays of the sun became stronger and stronger, and eventually he threw it away. So by a gentle method, it was possible to get the traveler to discard his blanket. And this is the parable that through peace you will be able to convert, you see, the most determined people. And that is the method we should follow. So significantly, he frames the whole question in forward-looking pragmatic terms. So how are we to achieve something, get the other party to do what we want? And then he just shows that this task is much more feasible if you can get the other party to work with you rather than against you. Progress is impeded by the other party's defensiveness. A gentle approach, by contrast, can gradually weaken defenses until the whole idea of self-defense is given up. Now, Mandela was not naive, and indeed he was not ideological either. He wasn't like Gandhi, who said that we should not resist Hitler by violence. Uh, we, we should uh, instead try to win him over to friendship, and I feel that was a doomed proposition. But uh, Mandela's parable is offered in a particular context that of the ending of a sometimes violent liberation struggle with people on the other side, many of whom are real patriots who want the future good of the nation. And he insisted from the start of his career that nonviolence is a strategy, but non-anger is behind it. And behind the strategic resort to violence was always a view of people that was focused not on payback, but on the creation of a shared future. So with that in mind, let me end with just one more Mandela story which shows him renouncing both the status error and the payback error. So here's Mandela, and he's talking about, it was the time when he was in Victor Vorster prison. So it was the third of the prisons he was in, and it was clearly transitioned toward his release. But he still was watched all the time, and he had these Afrikaner warders. So he's talking now about his interaction with Warder Swart, a white Afrikaner warder who was watching him when he was in this prison. The question was, how the dishes would get done, a question in many households all over the world. All right. I took it upon myself to break the tension 
and a possible resentment on his part that he has to serve a prisoner by cooking and then washing dishes. And I offered to wash dishes, and he refused. He says, this is his work. And I said, no, we must share it. Although he insisted and he was genuine, but I forced him, literally forced him, to allow me to do the dishes. And we established a very good relationship. A really nice chat border swart, a very good friend of mine. Now, it would have been so easy, of course, to see the situation as one of status inversion. The dominating Afrikaner is now forced to serve the once despised ANC leader, who, of course, by that time they know is about to be the leader of the country. It would also have been so easy to see it in terms of payback. The white warder is getting a humiliation he deserves because of his complicity in oppression. Significantly, Mandela just isn't even tempted by either of those doomed paths, even briefly. His only question is, how shall I produce cooperation and friendship? And it was this remarkable capacity for generosity and reciprocity that I think was his great genius, the fruit, as he reports, of years of isolation and bitter self-criticism about his tendency to anger. So it's a difficult goal, but it's that goal that I'm recommending for both individuals and institutions. Thanks. Okay, so we have about 12 minutes, at least, for questions, and uh, yeah. Uh, so we talked about the Greeks and also modern nonviolent movements. In between those two, I think Christianity is fairly influential, uh, has an influential role in Western thought. And I guess I bring this up because there's two things in my head that I'm, I'm rethinking about. And the first is the story of Christ being really angry at the money changers in the temple yeah. and like openings of all. And there's the very famous, you know, turn your other cheek. Yeah. And I guess I was wondering if you could talk about Christianity and its influence, complicated influence on our understanding of anger and justice. Oh, good, good. You, you know, actually, the larger project is about both anger and forgiveness. And what I want to say is that in both Judaism and Christianity, there are really, well, to simplify it, two strands. One is one which, um, to, up to a great degree, valorizes anger and then says, under certain conditions, when the person apologizes, humbles himself, confesses, etc., there should be this kind of conditional forgiveness. And that I criticize for various reasons, but, but I try to point out that even the forgiveness that's offered in that way is a kind of covert anger, because it's really you know, a way of putting the other person down. But then there's this other strand, and it is harder to find in Judaism. You can find it only in, I think, rabbinic texts that are a kind of counter-tradition. But anyway, in Christianity, it's... It's fairly prominent, which is one which sometimes people call unconditional forgiveness, but I would rather say generosity and love. If I'm, my prominent example of this is the case of the prodigal son, where the father, it's often talked about as a case of forgiveness, but think about what happens. So this son who wasted all his father's money and did all these bad things decides to come home. Now, we have absolutely no reason to actually think he's repenting, he may just be hungry, you know, but he comes home and the father sees him in the distance and he has no idea whether the son is actually repenting or going to apologize or anything. He just loves him and he comes out and embraces him 
And the older son, who's been a good guy, gets very upset at this and says, you know, why are you embracing this wrongdoer when I've been here all the time and I haven't done anything wrong? And the father repudiates that. And he says, you know, you're always with me, don't worry. But this one was lost and is now found. So, so that, I think, there's a lot of the story of Christ that goes in that direction. Now, as to the money changers, by the way, there's an interesting uh, thing about that. Uh, there's, there's one very interesting Eskimo culture, Inuit culture, described by anthropologist Jean Briggs in her great book, Never in Anger, where they really believe what I've just said, that you should never be angry, you should just cooperate. They have to cooperate under very harsh circumstances, and anger is a real threat to the success of hitching up the dog sled in 40 below, which maybe we can know from last week, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, they, but Jean Briggs was smart, and she, she wanted to figure out whether they really thought that you shouldn't be angry or just that you should constrain your expression of it. Or so she asks them about the money changers. Was Christ, because they were all Christians, so he's their moral ideal, was he really angry? And they right away say, no, he was not really angry, but he knew that this was a culture in which to get the result you want, you have to put on a performance. And he was just performing it. So it's a very interesting reading. And I think, uh, you know, maybe, I mean, the anger of God is a really, really interesting topic. And I do have a section in the manuscript uh, about that. But I I do think that that's uh, a very appealing way of thinking about it. Because, of course, there are situations. And I, myself, am often in situations where I realize that if I talk in a calm and collected way, which I'm inclined to do, it, it really is very counterproductive sometimes. Because people think this snooty woman with this intellectual voice is being calm and that is putting me down and and, and people get very angry when you talk to them calmly. So sometimes (laughs) it it works better, you know, to put on a performance of of a certain degree of anger. But of course, if it's a performance, it's modulated, it's under your control and so on. So so anyway, I I think it's a great question and, and I'd love to talk more about it. Yes. Okay, I'm sorry because I'm kind of late, but my name is Raul. I, I am from CTS Chicago Theology Seminar. One of my questions is uh, between the Gandhi, uh, 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 Dr. Martin Luther King, and Mandela. So, the mean, uh, the three guys put some, uh, it's called uh, uh, restorative justice. So, when you talk about restorative justice, I think this is going to be in the middle in terms of the find the pits and the injustice environment. So what do you think about that? Well, that's a big topic, and I'm not going to be able to deal with it exhaustively here, but what I really think is that in going forward, we need two things. The first is truth, acknowledgement of the wrong that was done. And why do we need that? We need that because of trust. We need it because you're not going to trust the police unless they agree that what they did before was wrong. And then we need reconciliation. So I actually think the South African com- Commission, as it really operated, did the right thing. That is to say, first, they have to tell the truth, and we have to have a public record that establishes a basis for trust. And then we, we just, no more piling on pain, we, we just have reconciliation. Now, I say as it actually operated, because Desmond Tutu's book has the title No Future Without Forgiveness. Now, he describes what he did quite correctly, 
And what he did had no component of groveling, apology, confession, or forgiveness. But then there's this last chapter where he suddenly pulls out all the Christian tradition and he says, well, now, what we really need is a person has to confess and has to humble himself, and then he has to, you know, if he does all that, he can receive forgiveness. I think there are a lot of processes in our world today that have built on that, and I think unfortunately so, that, that what really happened was, was much better because the minute you get into that confessional mindset, I think you, you deter the prospects for trust and reconciliation. So, so anyway, to put it in a nutshell. Yes, Yaroslav. Can you talk louder? Because I can't hear yes, you, okay. but also the mic can't hear you, I'm sure. Okay, uh, from, the, from the perspective of Eastern and Central Europe, we, have also, we can add also to Gandhi, Mandela, Václav Havel, Adam Vick, Nicolas Valenza, and so on. And uh, it's extremely interesting that all those strategies of uh, forgiveness, that the, they were more or less similar, because that non-violence was on the agenda. But the, uh, the, the main issue that is still uh, in the political life is and this question must be because that after those brilliant persons came the, some kind of uh, new ground for new political divisions. It means that they provoked people, provoked, so to say, new anger of those who wanted to something more than just a general forgiveness. They wanted a going case by case. And it's very interesting because it is still on the agenda in those small countries of Eastern and Central Europe as a, uh, as a, as a point of reference for political divisions. And it seems to be very far from being uh, settled down. And it goes through to next generations. I would like to ask you for a Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think it is a contextual matter. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that, uh, as I said in the talk, nonviolence, to my mind, is, a, is optional and strategic. And it's really the non-anger, the sentiments behind it and what you're trying to achieve that's primary and that there may be circumstances in which violence will be the only thing you can do, but you should do it in a certain spirit. But anyhow, to, to get to your question, I guess I think that in the South African situation, the, they were right to refuse the idea for individualized trials. And the reasons that Tutu gives are very good reasons. Namely, that if they went for trials, people would lawyer up, they would really obscure the evidence, and then there would never be the production of a public record that would be the basis for trust. Uh, now, on the other hand, of course, I'm all in favor of trials in, in the everyday justice case. That is, when a criminal commits a crime... I think truth is served by the criminal trial conducted in the right spirit, which, of course, it, it, it is, is often not. But, uh, but so in the everyday case, I think what we want is a, the truth component is established by a criminal trial that's individualized, and then the reconciliation component is, I think, best fostered by a variety of um, approaches to the whole question, beginning with education and nutrition, but in the punishment domain, focused on rehabilitation. And I, mean, I talk in the book about a number of experiments with juvenile justice that John Braithwaite has conducted, which have very much that spirit. So anyway, um, so that, you know, your case is 
a complicated intermediate one because we have countries that are perhaps you could get get the evidence for an individualized trial and there's a I guess one can understand why people would want to do that and of course a lot of people were angry in South Africa that there were no individualized trials I, I guess I would just think it's a contextualized matter do you have an urgent need for trust that will actually be derailed by this often doomed search for criminal convictions because they're going to lawyer up and the evidence is very hard to get? Or are you in more of an everyday justice situation where the best way of getting the truth is the individualized trial? And I, I guess I don't know enough about the individual countries. and We could talk about that some other time. Yeah? Thank you very much because I really feel the opposite of anger right now. But I'd like to know... <laughs> As you know, Michel Foucault's one of masterpieces of uh, uh, surveillance and punishment, where he argues that prison is an instrument of power of the state that has developed throughout the ages. And I'd like to know if, if his view of prison and retributive justice has inspired you, made you evolve in your conception, or, at, or if you don't share this view at all. Uh. I know it's controversial. Yeah, I, I actually, although I'm critical of, of lots of things about Foucault, I, I guess I, and particularly in the gender domain and the, the child sex domain and so on, but that particular work I think is a very, very important book. And, and yeah, I mean, I've taught it with Judge Posner. We had a seminar on Foucault and the law, and I, I think that's his best book. I would also mention his new book, which actually hasn't come out in English yet, but it's a book about the confessional. And it's come out in French, so you can read it. But it's, uh, <laughs> I, I know. Um, but uh, actually, I've got a copy of it, La Vue. And, uh, but Bernard Harcourt, our colleague, has translated it into English. And I actually have the manuscript of Bernard's English translation. And, you know, it really added a lot to what I was saying about the Christian tradition. Because in his usually idiosyncratic way, but still with a lot of interesting evidence, he shows the, the rise in the disciplinary use of the confessional as an instrument of power over the wayward conscience of the monk. So it was a way of control, you know, very much like discipline and punish. We turn from controlling acts now to controlling thought. So there's this kind of move toward thought control. If we can get people to feel they have to confess all the time and then that's never finished because there's always going to be some new sin you could get to confess, then we can control them very much. So, so yes, I think that's a very, very good and interesting work. Yeah? Um, at first, when you were talking about um, Martin Luther King and Gandhi, it seemed sort of like violence and anger were linked, no matter. And then you brought up Nelson Mandela and the use of uh, productive, a sort of productive violence in the proper mm -hmm. spirit. And I'm just curious, can you have this productive violence without anger, um, it, it seems like, it does seem like violence and anger have to be linked in a way. And, well, this, is, this has been discussed a lot in this tradition. And, uh, you know, way back to the Greeks and Romans, because uh, Seneca, who also has views related to mine, um, you know, he, he was a politician, but he had friends who were in the military, and, and they wanted to know, how can we have an army? doing its job without anger. And he points out, and I think quite plausibly, that an angry army is not the kind of army you want. It's likely to run amok and do things that they're not told to do. What you want is people who know what they're doing, and they do their duty, and they're inspired by a sense of their duty. 
And then he goes on to give examples of that. And then that's much more likely to be a disciplined army. Now, with the ANC, of course, it was very, very tricky. And I guess I think Mandela once in a while would allow the motivation of anger. But he also knew that the doom of the whole thing would be if that gets out of hand and and retains too much longevity. And so always he, you know, with himself and with his close associates, he always operated in a spirit of non-anger. And then with the larger group, you know, it was crucial that at some times he really intervened. And, uh, well, if you see, have you seen the Mandela movie? There's this episode near the start of the nation where violence is breaking out. And Mandela really feels that he has, I mean, there are two things he does that are really quite surprising. The first has to do with the national anthem, where people are, well, there are three things, really. There's the, this, the rugby team, but we all, all know that story from the other movie, which is, I think, a, a much better movie. But, um, <laughs> but he, you know, they had already voted that the rugby team would no longer represent the nation. The ANC had voted that because they were so angry. And he really comes in then and says, no, you must not have that spirit of retributive payback because this is sports are a big inspirer of people a big source of cooperation and motivation. You, you, you know, and he single-handedly vetoed an ANC uh, unanimous vote. It was quite dramatic. Uh, the, but with the national anthem, again, they, you know, of course, they want to sing Nicosia Sikolele Africa. They don't want to sing, uh, whatever is it, De Storm, uh, the, the, the Afrikaner anthem. And uh, they had already decided that they were going to, you know, put in a new national anthem. And again, you know, just single-handedly, and luckily he had that influence, he just says, no, we're going to have this fused national anthem. So if you know the national anthem that is sung today, it's actually in four, well, it's the first part is in two African languages, so it's four languages. Then there's the Afrikaner part, that's the traditional Afrikaner national anthem, and then there's a bit in English at the end. So it's bringing everyone together in music. So, um, but, but with the time when his henchmen were stirring up violence, he actually went on television. And once again, you know, he just says, this is not going to happen. We must cooperate. Unfortunately, in the Mandela movie, the guy, uh, he thinks that to play an older man, you go to sleep and you pretend you're asleep half the time. Uh, Idris Elba is a good actor, but he didn't, doesn't do aging well. Um, so he's sleepwalking through this bit, and it's not at all like Mandela. But he gets on TV, and he, he says something that I think is incorrectly scripted in the movie. He says, I've forgiven them, and you must forgive them too. Mandela never used the word forgiveness to my knowledge. But anyway, he did say, make this speech that was incredibly effective in getting people not to, 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 to stop the violence. And, and Gandhi could do the same thing too. It's... Um, you know, it's not easy because a leader can't be everywhere at once. And during partition, Gandhi could stop the violence in West Bengal, but he couldn't stop it in Uttar Pradesh and, and so on. But, uh, but anyway, it does, um, it does seem very important that that spirit should infuse the whole movement. And I think King was the most successful in that because he really had drilling sessions where, you know, people really did go through this kind of learning of nonviolence and learning of the spirit of non-anger, and they, they, they really worked hard on that. 
and I think fairly successfully. Yeah. I have more of a cons consequentialist concern with your thesis because I'm thinking of several good things we have now. I'm thinking democracy, limited government, the, the end of slavery here in the U.S., which are all things that came out out of processes that, that arose out of anger and violence towards the previous regime. So do you think these things, democracy, limited government, could have been, could have emerged without anger and violence? Well, okay, I just suddenly realized that we're out of time, but um, we, these are, each historical case is very complicated, and I mean, the civil rights movement, of course, I've already talked about, the end of slavery, I think that's a very complicated one for you, because it, the leading proponent of the end of slavery and a crucial linchpin was, of course, uh, Lincoln, but, but then there were also people like Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was extremely influential, whose spirit was one of empathetic understanding and cooperation and not of punitive payback. So, so I think, you know, it's a they, not an it, but a lot of the crucial actors acted in the spirit of non-anger, and I would say that's very, very true of the American Revolution as well. But I can't go into it in detail because I suddenly realize we're out of time. So thank you all very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.